Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. As always, I am your host, writer-director Christopher Amim, and I gotta ask, because it's a thing, are you there? Are you listening? I hope so, because this month, lots and lots of cool stuff. To start, I just want to say I'm really excited to be making this new movie, Demon with the Atomic Brain. It's been a couple months now since principal photography began, but realistically we're not that far into it. And that is because we started shooting in February, and we did a couple days worth of stuff in a set in my basement. If you're not aware, uh, a lot of my movies have been shot on sets in my basement. Because of the somewhat epic scope of the Demon with the Atomic Brain script... It requires quite a few different sets and locations. So what happened was we shot on one set, and then I had to tear it down and put up something else for the next week, and we shot a bunch of stuff on that. Then a few things came up. I was traveling, doing some conventions, etc., etc., screenings, what have you, that got in the way, but then also gave us a nice little break. Admittedly, I probably didn't have to start shooting as early in February as I did, but I was just so dang excited to get going that it is what it is. So we got a couple weekends under our belt and then had to take some time off because of other Mimiverse-related stuff. And then, during the very first weekend in March, we shot a scene which has a pretty fun little story associated with it. When I originally wrote the script, I wrote this scene that was supposed to take place outside in a vast, snowy wasteland. The tundra. Siberia. That kind of thing. Apparently, I have magical powers. I live in Minnesota. We get snow, we get cold. It's part of what we're known for. But, my magical power is, if I write snow into a script, we won't have any. In 2011, I wrote the House of Ghosts script, and in it, it calls for a major blizzard to trap the characters in the House of Ghosts, and that's part of the reason why they can't escape. That year, we had three snowfalls. Three. So few, they literally called it a snow drought. I still needed snow for that movie, so I had to digitally add it. I live in Minnesota, and I had to digitally add snow cover to my film. Since then, I hadn't written snow into any of my scripts until Demon with the Atomic Brain. I wrote a scene, like I said, that took place on a vast, snow-covered tundra, and nothing. All the snow we had melted. It was unusually warm, and we were just kind of screwed. Originally, the scene called for monsters that kind of resembled yetis excited to bring an iconic legendary monster into my films but it didn't necessarily make sense to have abominable snowmen when there was no snow so as the date we had set for filming got closer i realized that we were going to have to rethink some things i talked to mitch gonzalez who you should know creates all my monsters and we went back and forth about what we could do now, there was snow in the forecast for when we were shooting, but just not enough. And the weather looked like it was actually going to be kind of warm on the day we were going to shoot, which admittedly wouldn't be the worst thing. I had to rewrite the scene, and that was fine. We decided on a new monster and decided instead to use the end-of-winter dead look to our advantage. 
if you don't live in a state that has a real winter where all the leaves fall off the trees and everything just kind of looks dead, you wouldn't necessarily understand, but you've probably seen it in a movie somewhere. So we figured we'd use that. The snow had melted, but everything was still without color. It was very brown and dead. So I rewrote the scene. We got a new monster. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll just have to wait. We had our date set. We had our location set in Wisconsin, near the lead actress's house. In fact, literally across the street from her house. This giant, beautiful, open field that just went on and on. The weather forecast at the beginning of that week, we're going to shoot on a Saturday, said it was going to be upper 40s and cloudy, which was actually perfect for what I wanted. I have shot outside in the cold before, and I guess this is another example of how when I want to shoot with snow, my magical script writing weather powers work. When I made Destination Outer Space, we're shooting it in November of 2009, There's a scene that I wanted it to be snowy, because Captain Jackson, played by Josh Craig, is on this snow planet, and he and Catherine Hansen's character, Urena Null, are walking through the the woods, and there's supposed to be just a nice blanket of snow. The day we shot, there was no snow, but it was freezing cold, 19 degrees, and I don't know about you, but if you've never spent five or six hours outside in 19 degree weather you just haven't lived you're also probably smarter than i am because it was horrible we were all freezing and you know josh and Catherine were barely i mean their costumes were not were not heavy josh was wearing a flight suit which flight suits are not particularly insulated Catherine was just wearing this light leather coat needless to say it was rather miserable We got it done. But the worst part about that was we shot it, we got it, great. A week later, it was in the mid-30s and it snowed beautifully. Big, fluffy flakes. The kind of thing that would look great on film. But we shot it all the week before. Demon with the Atomic Brain. We're going to be shooting this scene. I've rewritten it. We're out there. Beginning of the week, it's supposed to be nice. And I'm figuring, hey, if we're shooting outside everything's dead, you'll at least get the impression, right, that it's it's this sort of dead, cold time. And I kept the idea of it being cold in that, that scene. I figured the actors would just have to act cold. Them being actors, I assumed they could manage that. This is the beginning of the week. It looks great. The days pass, and the forecasted temperature starts to drop more and more and more. And as an added bonus, on that Wednesday, we got three or four inches of snow. And I'm thinking, great. I rewrote it, and now I have snow. The weather doesn't like me. It's a fickle beast. However, Wednesday it snows. By Friday, it was warm enough that most of it had melted. Not entirely, which is fine. Uh, I actually like that there was still some snow on the ground. But, yeah. We get out there. And the forecast says it's going to be in the mid-30s. Still bearable if you're wearing proper clothing. I feel a little bad for the actors because, again, they're wearing flight suits. The monsters are wearing... They're wearing clothes, but they're not particularly heavy. I figured they'd be okay. 35, 36, bright sunshine. I wanted it to be cloudy, but we got bright sunshine. Should keep them warm. 
We get there, we get ready, we're gonna go shoot. We walk across the street to our location, and the wind is whipping across the plane. Just heavy gusts of wind. And I'm thinking to myself, this is gonna look cool. All this wind, their hair going crazy. I mean, you can see it. And when they say, oh, it's so cold, you'll believe it. Here's the thing. (laughs) It was really freaking cold. 35 degrees is not so bad without wind. When you have 30 mile per hour winds, sustained winds, with gusts up to 40 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour, that stuff is cold. No matter what you're wearing, no matter how many layers you have, it just gets inside you and it hurts. I was wearing a coat. I was covered in a blanket. I had a scarf. I had a ridiculous hat on. I I was still freezing. The actors, on the other hand, are wearing flight suits. They froze. And troopers that they are, we got the scene. We got it all. But when you watch this scene... And you see how cold they appear and how they're shivering and stuff? That's real. That is some method stuff right there. And because that shoot was so dependent upon the weather and the look and feel of that area, as soon as I shot it, and I shot it fast, I shot it way faster than I've shot anything else, to the point that I was actually kind of worried that I wasn't going to get all the footage I needed. But I got it. But because all of that was so dependent on the world looking the way it was... I started editing that scene the next night. And over the course of a couple weeks, I edited it together. I finished it, and I'm really, really happy with it. I think it's really cool. When you see it, think about how much it took for us to get it. And here's the other thing, too. There's actually another scene that takes place in this same location. And I have to hand it to uh, Mandy, our lead, because she had to shoot it with her flight suit tied around her waist and she's wearing just a tank top. She did it. Kicked its butt. But at that point, it was the end of the shoot. We've done everything else. This is the last thing we need. She's freezing. I'm freezing. And I know the only way we're going to get this is that we're both going to have to just buckle down and make it happen. So I started acting less like a director and more like some sort of personal trainer trying to goad her into just push yourself that much further. We can do this. We only need three takes. Let's do it. And we got it. So that's my that's my story about shooting Demon with the Atomic Brain. The most interesting story to date. But we have a lot left. So we shall see. One of the other reasons why we had to spread out some of these things is we built a cave again because I am crazy. It took us Weeks and weeks of paper mache and painting and just everything to get it. But it's there and it looks great. We start shooting on it tonight. It is noon right now. By 7 o'clock p.m., we will be shooting a scene on that set. And I'm really excited because it looks really cool. And the last time I did a cave set was Terror from Beneath the Earth. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to uh, bring that back. Somewhat as a nod to Terror from Beneath the Earth, but then also because... Why not add to the scope of this particular production by adding a cave on top of everything else? So I'm very excited to shoot on it, but I'm even more excited to just finish shooting this film because everything I've gotten has been gold, and everything I've edited has been fantastic, and I'm I'm really enthusiastic about this film in a way that I haven't 
been about a movie in a long time. Which is not to say that I don't love those other movies, but there's just an energy about this particular film and its production. I think it is because we invited new people into the Mimiverse. There's a new raw energy to it that is infectious, and it has infected me. And so I'm very excited. Are you excited? I hope you are. Are you excited enough to contribute to the film? I would hope you are, if you haven't already, or even if you have and you want to contribute more. If you're planning on buying the film when it's done anyway, why not just give a little more and get your name in the credits? And be one of those people who makes this all possible. I'm just saying, I would really appreciate it. The actors would appreciate it. The production will appreciate it. So please go to DemonWithTheAtomicBrain.com and contribute. I know you probably get sick of hearing my pitch, but it's contributions from people like you that make it all possible. I hate to sound like a public broadcasting pledge drive, but it's true. These films are crowdfunded. If you like them, and you plan on buying it anyway, you know, contribute. You'll, you get a free copy of the film. Sure, it's a little more expensive, but you also get your name in the credits, and uh, you get a cool certificate that I sign personally that says you contributed. You can frame it, you can put it on your wall. It's perfect. You should consider if you haven't. I've said it before. I would really appreciate it. All right, so that's what's going on in the Mimiverse right now. It's all Demon with the Atomic Brain all the time. There are events coming up in April. For instance, Danny Johnson Saves the World will be screening at the Alamo Draft House in Richardson, Texas on the 9th of April. I will be there to present it, and all kids 13 and under who attend will receive a special free gift. Where's Keto Nazi Hunter will be screening uh, in Burlington, Wisconsin. And during the final weekend of April, myself and uh, several others will be at Odyssey Con in Madison, Wisconsin. You should come down, hang out, say hi, come to these events. We have others coming up after that. Not much on the calendar, but a lot in the works. So I'll keep you apprised of that. So that's really it. That's everything going on. Uh, I hope to see you at an event. I hope you contribute to the film. And I'm telling you, this one's going to take you by surprise. I really think so. I don't know that the the title of it is as catchy as something like Where's Keto Nazi Hunter, but I'll tell you right now, this one is going to surprise you. It's coming together really well. It's going to be really entertaining and fun. Before I take a break, I think I should probably remind you that the Monster of Phantom Lake, the musical performance DVD, is now available for sale. We did the DVD release party on March 11th this past month, and it was fun, and I think the entire cast of the play was there. And they all gave it the thumbs up, which, if you know actors, and especially theater actors, they don't necessarily like watching themselves. The fact that they were all very happy with it goes to show that it's worth owning, you know? You should probably pick one up. It's available at SaintEuphoria.com or on Amazon.com. Just search for The Monster Family like the Musical, and it'll come up. And here's proof that it's awesome. It already has two five-star reviews, and I'm going to read one of them, because it's all the motivation you should need beyond loving the Mimiverse so much to go pick it up. It's by Amazon Customer, <laughs> which doesn't tell you much, but they gave it five stars and titled their review, Bravo! They say... It's a brilliant work of art. The music is unexpectedly outstanding. The storyline moves along at an enjoyable pace, and the acting is fantastic. 
Adam Bowl takes it to the next level with his catchy and well-written tunes. You don't want to miss this new musical. It'll knock your socks off. And I promise you it will. Pick it up today at SaintEuphoria.com or grab it on Amazon. So for now, I have something special in store for you. If you don't listen to the Monster Kid Radio podcast, you're missing out. Derek Cook is a rare talent in the realm of not only podcasting, but classic monster movie appreciation. The man knows his stuff. He gets good guests, and his show is really well produced and entertaining. You should check him out at monsterkidradio.net. In the meantime, here he is to tell you a little something. When we come back, I got something special for you. Talk to you in a bit. All the classic monster movies are connected. Sure, some of them were all produced or released by the same studio. It's easy to say Lugosi's Dracula is connected to something like 1944's House of Frankenstein. Most of Toho's kaiju films are connected. Hammer Films had their various franchises. But there's one movie that can reach across the studios, across the pond, across time. And that's Creature from the Black Lagoon. My name is Derek M. Cook, and anyone who listens to my podcast, Monster Kid Radio, knows that Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film of all time. Hands down. No question. I love it so much. And as I've watched it over and over and over again over the years, I've started noticing the connections between this film and the rest of classic monster moviedom. Sometimes it's through an actor, a director, a location. There's always something to connect Creature through one or two steps to another monster movie. And we're going to explore that here on The Creature Connection. Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passion, making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passion. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Derek, my man, this is Dr. Gang Green. I heard you putting the call out for the Creature Connection. I love the idea, bud. That's a great idea. So to challenge you, I will throw out the title, Invasion of the Saucer Man. Let's hear the connection between that and Creature from the Black Lagoon. All right, buddy. Good challenge, Doc. All right, so Invasion of the Saucer Men is a 1957 science fiction film released by American International Pictures. Now, AIP did more than just genre films, but let's be honest. As fans of these kinds of movies, we know AIP is the studio responsible for several classic and, well, sometimes not so classic, monster movies of the 50s and 60s. James H. Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff produced and co-produced movies like I Was a Teenage Werewolf, The Amazing Colossal Man, It Conquered the World, How to Make a Monster, and, well, I think you get the point. Invasion of the Saucermen fit in right at home amongst these titles. Well, some of them more than others, because these days, Nicholson and Arkoff have both passed away, and the rights to their AIP films were split up between their spouses and heirs and various studios and whatever. Why, what are you looking for under a tombstone in broad daylight? Shh! You'll scare her away. Scare her away? Who? What? What what can you scare away here in a cemetery? My ghoul friend. She's the ghost in the invisible bikini. (coughs) What are you putting me on? Herbie, I know you're broad-minded, but this is ridiculous. No, I'm serious. And you should see her since she traded her bedsheet for a bikini. Well, you must enjoy looking around for a real nothing broad. 
It's really just that American International is inviting everyone out to the graveyard for a blood-curdling blast with the ghost in the invisible bikini to see Tommy Kirk, Deborah Wally, Aaron Kincaid, Harvey Lembeck, and Jesse White with Nancy Sinatra, and guest stars Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, and Susan Hart in The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini in Path A Color and Panavision. Now, you would have to get commercial. Now, you scared her away. Ooh. Arkov's widow, Susan Hart, who is an actress in things like Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine and the Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, to this day still owns the rights to 11 of the titles from American International Pictures, including Invasion of the Saucermen. And this is why it doesn't have a proper DVD release today. For whatever reason, Susan Hart hasn't made her AIP titles available to DVD or Blu-ray companies, so we're either left with the VHS of the film that was released in the 90s or hope to catch the movie some other way. I know it gets aired on television every once in a while, and she even licenses her movies out for film screenings occasionally. Hello, police type artist? This is Carter, Johnny Carter. Oh, sure, they're from another planet. What a dilemma for young lovers Steve Terrell and Gloria Castile. You thought I was kidding. Nobody will believe the invasion of the saucer men. All this makes it seem natural for a beer-drinking bull to appoint himself chaperone of Lover's Lane. Hey, for Pete's sake! And a farmer with the longest shotgun you've ever seen plays the villain. What's so funny? Well, I expected to be frightened on my wedding night, but nothing like this. It's our busy night, too. We've been flooded with calls from people who say they've seen flying saucers and little green monsters. Wonder how that rumor ever got started. It's too fantastic to believe. Just think of it. Only this special unit and the President of the United States will know what happened here tonight. You mean you think we know what's happened? Now, as for the movie itself, it's a fun, drive-in style sci-fi flick from the 50s. The aliens look pretty darn cool, but then it's hard to be anything but impressed when it comes to a Paul Blaisdell-designed monster. classic Ronald Stein. It's unmistakable, and you just can't hear his monster movie music without your mind instantly taking you to the drive-in, even if you've never been to a drive-in. And by the way, if you haven't, you really owe it to yourself to find one since it's springtime and drive-in season. Back to Paul Blaisdell. His monster designs have a distinct look about them. He was a fast worker and created creatures in movies like She-Creature that conquered the world and Ghosts of Drag Strip Hollow, although really he just recycled the She-Creature for that. But anyway, he worked fast and cheap, that's the point. And because of this, he was naturally employed by Roger Corman, who used him and his talents on the film Day the World Ended. One scientist foresaw the day the world ended. There are two forms of life fighting for survival out here in this valley. And only one of them can win. I'll talk to the girls in the morning. The girls? Yes. They should bear children as soon as possible.
scientist, he did not consider a human emotion. No one takes my gun. Tell me, look out! He did not know about the uninhibited exhibitionism of a striptease dancer. He'd forgotten about the power of love and knew nothing about the vicious force of jealousy. Nothing ever come easy to me. Don't touch me. I can't stand you. Tony, let the little girl go. But more thrilling, more exciting, more mystifying is the monster. The mutation by atomic energy, part man, part beast, salaciously watching women as they bathe. A monster such as the eyes of man has never before seen. Killing one by one each of the few living men. Hunting out the most beautiful of the remaining women to take as his mate. Hey, the World Ended is a post-apocalyptic science fiction film released by AIP in 1955. And if you go back and listen to that trailer again, and you love Creature from the Black Lagoon the way I do, you're going to recognize that lead actor's voice. There are two forms of life fighting for survival out here in this valley. And only one of them can win. That's Richard Denning, one of the male leads of Creature from the Black Lagoon. He plays Mark, the scientist who puts the funds together for the trip to look for the Gill Man in the titular Black Lagoon. So we can make the jump from Invasion of the Saucermen through Paul Blaisdell to Day the World Ended and then through Richard Denning to Creature from the Black Lagoon. But let's strengthen this creature connection a little bit more. Ronald Stein also did the music for Day the World Ended, so we have that connection. And another one of the leads in Day the World Ended is Lori Nelson, who happens to be the female lead in The Revenge of the Creature, Creature from the Black Lagoon sequel. Okay, so monster design and music, for my money, that's a good connection, but we can take it a step further. The Nation of the Saucer Men was directed by Edward L. Kahn, and through him, we solidify this connection because he also directed Richard Denning in Creature with the Atom Brain and John Agar in Invisible Invaders. Now, in addition to being somebody who rules, John Agar was also in The Revenge of the Creature. I'd like to thank Dr. Gay Green for the Creature Connection Challenge this time around. He's a Tennessee horror host, and you can find him online at drgaingreen.com. He's also the host of the long-running YouTube series, The Fantastic Films of Vincent Price, in which he's discussing every film in Vincent Price's long career in order. Now, after over 70 episodes, he's into the 1970s, and his most recent episode covered the movie Theater of Blood. And special thanks to the Columbus, Ohio surf band Mumula, whose song Black Lagoon we used to open and close the Creature Connection. You can find Mumula on Facebook and Bandcamp. The song Black Lagoons appears on their album The Rise of Mumula. If you have a classic monster movie with which you'd like to see me make a Creature Connection, we'll call the Monster Kid Radio voicemail line at 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. Until next time, you can hear me every week on Monster Kid Radio at monsterkidradio.net, iTunes, Stitcher, and a handful of other pod catchers. Again, my name is Derek M. Cook, and until next time, keep an eye out for that creature connection. Fantastic. All right. Normally during this part of the show, I will read you something. Last month, I I read you some of my poetry, quote-unquote. Previously, I've read 
a script I wrote for my mostly abandoned Twilight Zone-esque project, The Phantom Files. And then, of course, for 19 straight months, I read you a chapter from The Canoe Cops vs. The Mummy by Stephen D. Sullivan, which, I don't know if you're aware of this, but is currently available in book and Kindle form at Amazon.com. Go pick up a copy. This month, I'm going to read you something that I wrote. You see... There's a part of me that, in addition to being a screenwriter and a filmmaker, would love to be a novelist. I've always thought it'd be fun to write a book. It's not fun, I'll tell you that. It's work. But rewarding work. And at some point in my life, I would like to publish a novel. And so, I've decided to try and write one. Something that's within my wheelhouse. Something cheesy, but maybe not quite something you would imagine seeing in one of my films. As you know, or should know, I like to pay homage to cheesiness from the 50s and 60s. One of the things I haven't done to date is a spy movie. But I don't know that a spy movie would necessarily fit with all my other films, because I make monster movies. But I came up with an idea for a James Bond-esque 1960s Cold War spy named Beef McCormick. Yes, you heard that right, Beef, as in cow. And because I'm a huge nerd, and I live in the North, and I really like curling, he's not only a spy, he's a curler, and a damn fine one at that. The name actually comes from a real world-ranked curler named Heath, like the candy bar, McCormick. Here in Minnesota, I don't know if it's where you are, but in Minnesota, in the winter, there's NBC Sportsnet has Curling Night in America. And they show high-end Olympic-level curling matches. A couple years ago, Michael Kaiser, who you should know as the guy who plays all the monsters in my movies, and I were watching Curling Night in America, and they announced the skip, or captain, of one of the American teams, and the man's name was Heath McCormick. Inexplicably, I heard them say Beef McCormick, and I couldn't help but laugh, because what a fantastic name, if that were really his name, or his nickname even, Beef McCormick. And that set the the wheels turning about who would Beef McCormick be. It ended up being this story about this James Bond-esque international spy who also is a damn fine curler. And nothing ever came of it, but it, it became kind of a running joke with my curling team. The Rock Monsters, which, yes, they are Mimiverse-themed. Then it hit me that this would be the perfect subject for me to write a book about. And I've decided it's time to give it a try. And use the Mimiverse monthly audio cast as a way to get it out there and, and hopefully prove to myself and to you whether or not I should even bother writing a book. I don't know if I'm a good narrative fiction writer. I really don't know. Uh, I know I can write a pretty mean cheeseball script, but I'm not sure about my ability to sustain an actual novel, or if I'm even good at it. I may be terrible at it, and this may be the worst thing you've ever heard. But I have dedicated myself to at least writing a couple chapters to see how it goes. I have written the first chapter, and I'm going to read it to you this month. And I hope you like it. It's a Beef McCormick adventure. And to adequately pay homage to, well, James Bond, 
I've decided that the title of any and all Beef McCormick stories should be a variation on a James Bond title. So I went through all the James Bond movies, and I, I was I was trying to think of ways to change them into curling puns. And already I know you're groaning, but it's it's good stuff. The title is For Your Ice Only. As you know, there was a James Bond film called For Your Eyes Only, but this is For Your Ice Only. I'm going to read you chapter one. If you like it, I really need you to let me know. This is For Your Ice Only, chapter one, a Beef McCormick adventure. It was the title game of the 1963 International Curling Championships, and the moment was thick with tension. For 11 grueling ends, Team McCormick traded points with their bitter rivals, the Soviets. Now, here in the twelfth and final end, the curling arena was inordinately silent as Beef McCormick, legendary skip of the American team, stepped out onto the ice. Every eye was upon him, and yet, as a man who always remained cool under pressure, it barely registered in his brain. Built like a comic book hero, and as handsome as he was talented, he was used to the attention. Beef could be best described as the quintessential good guy. Fiercely intelligent, eloquent to a fault, tough as nails, trustworthy from top to bottom, and blessed with an overwhelming sense of humility. He was a true sportsman and man of honor. With a single wink, he could have any woman he desired. He was everything every good man aspires to be. As Beef silently placed the sole of his right shoe into the hack, he took the opportunity to size up his competition. The Russians are a solid group of athletes, he thought, playing the game aggressively and with much skill. The opposing second, a man named Ivan Bentonov, seemed to play with an exceptionally ruthless precision. Beef considered that, perhaps in another life, Mr. Bentonov would make an excellent addition to his own team. However, international relations being what they were, the chances of it ever happening landed somewhere between don't hold your breath and no way, no how. Still, Despite the Soviet team hailing from the homeland of the United States' greatest Cold War enemy, in the gentleman's game of curling, none of that mattered. Players shook hands at the beginning of the game and shared revelries after it was over, regardless of who triumphed. Therefore, anything was possible. Beef's focus returned to the current moment. His two sweepers were lined up on either side of him, their brooms at the ready, prepared to do their part to help his rock find its final resting place. Beef crouched into position, tucking his broom neatly under his left arm and using the head to steady himself. His yellow-handled stone rested on the ice directly in front of him, already placed there by his teammates. He took a moment to visualize where and how he wanted to deliver his shot. He knew to win, he had to slide his rock onto the button, the name given to the two-foot center of the four concentric rings found at both ends of the 146-foot-long sheet of ice. In curling terms, these 12-foot-wide sets of rings are referred to collectively as the house. To where Beef needed to deliver his shot, a messy array of random yellow and red-handled stones dotted the outer edges and the area immediately in front of the house, but the left-hand side was wide open, and Beef was confident he would have no trouble avoiding any obstacles. Covering just less than half of the right side of the button, two red stones belonging to the Russian team sat in a perfect line. The rocks were so close to each other, the back side of one touched the front face of the other immediately behind it. Beef knew he could aim for the front red stone, but even with all the power he could muster, which was considerable, 
The best he could hope for was a croquet-like ricochet that would send the back stone out of play and leave the front where it was, closer to the button than his, effectively giving the communists enough of an advantage to steal the title. Beef knew his only logical choice was to land his shot in such a way as to be taking up the entire remaining percentage of the button, and that meant his stone would most likely end up resting against the Russian rocks. It was a tough shot to make for even the most skilled of curlers. Luckily, Beef McCormick was just such a curler. Team McCormick's vice skip stood within the house at the far end of the sheet, his broom held forward like an extension of his own arm. The head of his broom was placed facing outward upon the ice near the inner edge of the outermost 12-foot circle to provide a target for Beef's aim and enough space for the rock to curl back toward its ultimate destination. Curling ice is unique compared to that used for other winter sports. It is prepared by sprinkling warm water on the frozen surface to create a pebble, This pebbling gives curling stones something to grip and allows the stone's path to naturally curve based on the speed, referred to as its weight, of a curler's delivery and the direction of the spin, or turn, the player adds. This curve is what gives the sport of curling its name. Beef took a deep breath and purposefully exhaled. He stared down the length of the sheet, squinting his eyes as he honed in on his vice skip's broom. So as not to disrupt Beef's concentration, the vice stood completely still, as did the three members of the Russian team who stood off to the side and out of the way. Curiously, Ivan Bentonov appeared to be missing from the group. Beef's attention drifted toward the absent player. It's not like Bentonov to miss such an important moment in such an historic game, Beef thought. With so much dependent upon the outcome of this one shot, Beef ultimately shrugged it off and refocused his mind on the task at hand. Reaching forward, he lightly rested his right palm on the handle of his final stone. He twisted his wrist and gave the rock a spin. He watched as it twirled, momentarily losing himself in the hypnotic nature of the rotating handle. Strangely, as Beef watched, he noticed something seemed potentially off about the way it spun, a small, almost imperceptible defect in its motion. Deciding that perhaps the extraordinary nature of this moment was simply getting the best of him, Beef decided to ignore the tingling sense of weirdness tickling the back of his neck and finish the game. Dropping his hand, he deftly caught the handle with a quiet thunk. He redirected his gaze onto his distant target, and, as he did so, the assembled crowd held its collective breath. He pulled the stone toward him, keeping his elbow straight and sliding his left foot backward a few inches. Finally, with exacting precision and power, he pushed his body out of the hack. Staying low to the ice, he stretched into a lunging position, never once taking his eyes off the imaginary bullseye painted on the head of the vice skip's broom. Beef knew from years of practice that his speed was exactly where it needed to be to put the game away in his favor. Within an inch of the near hog line, the point at which a curler must release their stone or risk faulting on their throw, Beef gently turned the handle inward to add the correct amount of curl before letting go. The running surface of the rock slid beautifully along the pebbled ice. The American sweepers walked along either side of it, their brooms at the ready should Beef call on them to do their jobs. However, both of them felt it on an elemental level. Beef's delivery was impeccable, and their services would not be necessary. Beef listened intently to the soft, familiar roar of granite gliding atop granules of frozen water. He watched as the rock slowly spun and began to curl in toward the button. 
For the briefest of moments, he felt an intense sense of satisfaction, but, as he analyzed the stone's rotation, he again noticed something was amiss. He looked at the Russian team and noticed Mr. Bentonoff had not yet returned. Suddenly, alarm bells started to blare in his head. Something was definitely wrong. He crouched down to get a better view of the rock. Sweep! Beef yelled at the top of his lungs. Shocked by his unexpected command, his sweeper shared a bewildered look. Multiple audible gasps echoed throughout the arena. Sweep! Now! Beef ordered. Trusting in Beef's talent and authority, his teammates did as they were told and placed their broomheads in succession in front of the traveling stone. As the rock continued on its path toward the house, Beef's sweepers directed all of their weight into the ice, swishing their brooms back and forth with all the speed they could manage. Confused, the lead player on the Soviet team turned toward his skip. What is he doing? His delivery was perfect. I do not know, but... I will not complain when we win as a result of his incompetence. Puzzled by the behavior of his captain, the vice skip of the American team called out to his teammates, Stop sweeping! No! Beef cried. Despondent, the vice yelled across the length of the sheet. The weight was perfect! It's going to go too deep! The American second looked back at Beef and added, He's right! It doesn't matter! Do not stop! Sweep! Beef commanded. He jumped to his feet and began to slide manically toward the stone. As the rock passed the far hog line, the second made a snap decision, raised his broom and backed away from the stone. Joining in the other sweeper's mutiny, the lead followed suit. No! Beef shouted. Beef quickly caught up with the stone. Taking matters into his own hands, he began to sweep with all of his might. What are you doing? The vice skip of the American team was beside himself with rage. Beef ignored the other man's incredulity and continued to work the ice as hard as he could. His teammates helplessly gawked, unsure why their captain would seemingly be trying to throw the championship to the Reds. As the stone crossed the threshold and entered the house, Beef took a moment to assess its path. He knew it would be close, but under no circumstances was he going to stop. Beef swept like a madman while his baffled teammates shook their heads in disbelief. A palpable sense of impending victory painted the Russian team's faces with toothy grins. They knew the Kremlin would be most pleased, and upon returning home, they'd be met with parades and their chests would be decorated with medals. Beefstone began to lose speed, but he didn't give up. He continued to sweep with every ounce of strength he possessed. Sweat beaded on his forehead as the rock entered the four-foot circle surrounding the button. His vigorous sweeping, and that of his teammates, had clearly delayed the amount the stone was going to curl and extended the distance it was meant to travel. However, Beef was unsure if it was enough to avoid hitting the two red-handled rocks covering most of the center circle. He still wasn't entirely sure why he believed this needed to be avoided, but he knew his instincts rarely let him down. As Beef's stone passed over the edge of the button, he continued sweeping with gusto. The three Russians began to openly celebrate as they recognized that the American stone was going to miss its mark. Beef's team and the general audience groaned in utter disbelief and abject disappointment. The rock's momentum began to dwindle to little more than nothing, and yet Beef persisted. Finally, the right side of the American stone slid within a hair's width of the edge of the back Russian stone, but thanks to Beef's intense efforts, it did not make contact. Instead, it slipped past and drifted harmlessly to a stop within the back four-foot circle. Beef exhaled a sigh of relief. 
His arms felt like loose gelatin, and his head swam with stars. The Soviet team hugged and merrily shook hands, clearly overjoyed by their unexpected win. Beef centered himself, knowing full well the ordeal wasn't over. The Russian skip stepped forward, his hand extended in a gesture of sportsmanship. Ignoring the Russian's handshake attempt, Beef straightened to his full height and scowled at his rival. "'Where's Bentonov?' Beef growled. "'I do not think it matters.' "'We have won,' the Soviet captain answered. He shoved his hand forward impatiently. Beef was unimpressed. "'Where is Bentonov?' "'I do not know. Why do you care where my second is? This is an outrage that you would refuse my hand!' The Russian skip bellowed. Without another word, Beef knelt near his final rock and placed his broom on the ice. He gingerly ran his fingers along the seam where the handle met stone and quickly found what he was looking for. With a twist and an audible click, the handle inexplicably disengaged. Beef delicately removed it from the stone and set it aside. The captain of the Soviet team took a panicked step back when he saw what was inside. Is that... He managed to choke out. Beef McCormick looked the man dead in the eye. Yes, comrade, that is a bomb. The Russian muttered something profane in his native tongue before directing his team to escape as fast as possible. Without argument, they did just that. Clear the building, Beef calmly directed his team. The American lead and second sprung into action and began coordinating the evacuation. Taking a moment to study the device stuffed into the hollowed curling stone, Beef took note of two large lumps of plastic explosive packed on either side. He could clearly ascertain the two chunks were of slightly differing sizes. This, he surmised, is what caused the almost undetectable wobble which affected the stone's spin. Beef's extensive knowledge of munitions and explosives allowed him to see that the bomb was built to explode in the event of even a minor jostling, something that would have happened had he allowed his stone to collide with his opponents. In case the primary trigger was never activated, the designer of this dastardly weapon of destruction had also installed a backup plan, a crude timer which appeared to have been pulled from a cheap alarm clock. Nestled between the globs of explosive death and located in a tangled mess of wiring, the timer was actively counting down and getting close to zero. What are you going to do? Beef's vice skip asked, his voice wavering ever so slightly. With only ten seconds remaining, the only thing I can do. Disarm this bomb before it destroys the entire facility and everyone in it. Beef's voice dripped with confidence, but deep down inside, even he was worried. The evacuation progressed around him, albeit mostly in vain. If Beef couldn't render the explosive harmless within the next couple seconds, few would survive the blast. Relying on his years of training and first-hand experience, he deliberately slowed his heart rate and mentally suppressed the noise of the rising panic flooding the arena. He studied the device's wiring, mapping the electric pathways in his mind's eye. All he needed to determine was which wire, when safely severed, would stop the countdown and disarm the bomb. His neurons and synapses worked overtime as the timer ticked ever closer to fiery doom. Five. Four. Three. Two. Dun, dun, dun! Okay, so that's it. That's chapter one of Four Year Ice Only. If you like it, you gotta let me know, and I'll continue writing it. Does he disarm the bomb? I don't know. Thank you for listening to the April edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audio Cast. As always, I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and, as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. I'll talk to you soon. 
<laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse Joke of the Month. But first, I need to congratulate Christopher R. Mim for the giant spider winning the audience poll of the best movie in the first five seasons of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob. It was a heated competition, but the giant spider won seven legs above everyone else. And now, on to the joke. We're going to do a bit of a time travel joke this month, because after last month's daylight savings time losing an hour, time has been on my mind a lot. A bartender says, Hey, we don't serve faster than light particles in here. A tachyon walks into a bar. Make sure you come out April 8th to the Gateway Film Center when we will be showing a mystery vampire movie. It could be any vampire movie. Any vampire movie at all. It could be Dracula. It could be Blade. It could be Lost Boys. It could be Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The only thing it's definitely not is it's definitely not Twilight. Twilight is not a vampire film. I don't know what those sparkly freaks are, but they're not vampires. Check us out at www.midnightmonstermovies.com. Midnight Monster Movies.